Strategic Financial Partners presents the Rush Hour Podcast, where the rubber meets the road on the economy, stock market, and personal finance. Now here's your host, Matt Rush. Welcome to the Rush Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rush, and with me today is a colleague of mine, Pat Crowley. Pat is the director of SFP Wealth Strategies and is a subject matter expert and resource to our advisors and clients on issues affecting families of varying wealth profiles. He's proficient in the business planning arena, offering consultation in exit and succession strategies for business owners. He also concentrates on tax planning as well as charitable giving and personal trust planning. Pat, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I'm excited to have such a tech-savvy person as yourself joining me today on a podcast. (laughs) Does that make me a pod person? Yes, that does make you a pod person. Okay, sounds great. So for those that are listening that have not ever come across you before, would you give us an idea of what exactly your role is with our firm and maybe an overview of SFP Wealth Strategies? Yeah, um, just a kind of a brief background for myself. I'm an attorney by training, and I joined the financial services world back in 1984, which meant for the most part I stopped practicing, uh, but I am still intimately involved in um, legal matters, uh, tax planning in particular, uh, reviewing contracts and documents. And so uh, as things progressed over time, you know, it seemed to me that there were uh, effectively two models in the financial services world that were predominant. One was the transactional. I will help you buy a stock. I'll help you sell a stock. So it's just that transaction. The other was uh, this financial planning model that essentially was designed to focus on accumulation you know, uh, can I get to my particular goal, retirement, uh, and then distribution? How do I spend the money that I've accumulated so I can have a successful retirement? And there were some other models that associated with financial planning, like asset allocation, et cetera. But um, that was the focus. Uh, And for many people, that left them uh, without real direction as to how all all those different things came together. So, for example, the way that I see wealth strategies, in particular at Strategic Financial Partners, is that it's a link between my assets and my income, um, how I'm structured, how I own things, et cetera, and then finally to my legacy. When I uh, leave things down to the next generation, to my children, or to charity, how does that go? And um, you know, kind of stops along the way are issues about taxation, issues about ownership. How do I own the assets? So do I own it in my name? Do I own it in my, uh, jointly with my wife? Do I own it inside my business? Uh, and you know, other elements come into play as well, and that's measurements of risk. Uh, how do I protect myself from outside claims of creditors and predators, as they say? How do I build walls around uh, particular risk? And the last piece of that would be, you know, basic stuff in terms of blocking and tackling, uh, life insurance, disability, those items. But I, so as a result, I kind of look at wealth strategies as a um, total look that is constantly changing. And the key component that distinguishes somebody who's intimately involved in wealth strategies is working with the client to get those items implemented. So if we say you need a new will, we work with you to get to the attorney to have the will drafted in the proper fashion. Oftentimes, the recommendations are you need a new will, and then essentially it's good luck getting that done. 
so that's how we view wealth strategies as um, kind of a soup to nuts uh, with a focus on implementation. Well, I can speak from experience that it's definitely been a differentiator and has really accelerated the financial planning process with clients. Uh, so let's go ahead and talk about a client. 2020 has been a crazy year for everybody, but you say, especially for small business owners, talk about some of the challenges that that group in particular has faced this year. Well, you know, um, it's been driven to a large degree by uh, this virus uh, that's uh, created this national emergency. And uh, that's disrupted a number of industries. If you look at where uh, small business is in terms of the industries that are most often a small business, um, it's business services, professional services, you know, CPAs, attorneys, physicians, et cetera. Uh, it's retail. You know, they, uh, you go into a small dress shop and uh, somebody locally owns that shop and they're struggling to make sure that um, they can stay afloat, meet the rent, meet the uh, uh, payroll, et cetera. And so uh, that just keeps going on in terms of construction, um, food and restaurant area, uh, and then other services in general. Those are all small business. And if you think about it in terms of interactions, do I really want someone to come into my home to clean my carpets during the period of a virus? And so that limits my customer base. For a restaurant, I don't even know what those people are really even beginning to try to do as far as to sustain themselves. I think one of the accolades that should come out of this virus period is the creativity that you've seen, say, in the hospitality industry in, in general. Uh, about you know takeout orders, about uh, you know uh, putting in a window for drive-through in restaurants that never had that before. Uh, so all of this at, you know diminished activity that they were used to seeing in terms of walk-in people coming in and saying uh, you know tell me about what you do. That's all you know essentially dried up to a large degree. And then there was this attempt uh, to help business owners with a stimulus package. And that stimulus package basically broke down into two different loan programs, one which was referred to as uh, PPP, which was essentially payroll protection. And it was designed to, here's money from the federal government, use it properly in terms of uh, trying to uh, uh, spend the money toward keeping employees on your payroll and uh, allocating it to some other defined expenses if you use it properly with those qualified expenses, the promise was we'll forgive that. We'll forgive that loan. Uh, and the um, uh, small business market looked at it as, yeah, this is great. Uh, and then the second piece was idle, which is the um, economic disaster loans that you typically saw that were always available in regional uh, disasters, so like with hurricanes or tornadoes, et cetera. Um, those have always been with us, but since we have this national emergency with the virus, that idle loan became nationally available as well. That, pretty that idle loan pretty much works as promised. But the PPP uh, was you know, a promise that got tarnished by implementation. And you really have to blame uh, Washington to a large degree on this because they rolled the program out and then made constant changes to how the program was supposed to work. And that created confusion for a number of business owners and uh, you know, uncertainty about how do I spend the money again? 
What are the rules? And then secondly, how do I get forgiven? When should I apply for forgiveness? I will tell you right now that bankers, who I think business owners need to rely on for this PPP guidance, uh, bankers are telling their clients right now, their business owner clients, don't submit for forgiveness right now because you can wait. The time's been extended. And what you're waiting for is to determine, one, will Congress come in at the last minute and say, under certain dollar amounts as far as loans, we don't even care if you make application for forgiveness. That's, might be, that's, that's potentially in the offing right now. Uh, and then secondly is, if you're the first one to ask for forgiveness, you're kind of the guinea pig. So let other people submit first, see how that process goes, uh, and uh, then you can kind of follow the model that comes out of it. Business owners shouldn't be left in the lurch like this. And um, the direction that we've seen from Washington to this point hasn't been great on this particular program. So what do we see with business owners going forward? What I see is that they're making sure that they're readying themselves for any coming storms. There's always something with a business owner. Uh, and so cash is going to be king. Keeping good employees is going to be paramount. Uh, doing that in a fashion that um, allows them to stay afloat and you know, sort of control their expenses is going to be critical. Uh, business owners are typically resilient. Uh, as I say, they're very creative and they'll ride through this, but they need a little more help and direction from Washington than perhaps what they've received. Well, talking about things that are on the horizon and potential storms, we've got an election coming up and there's a lot of eyes on the capital gains tax. Um, how might a revision to that capital gains tax affect somebody that's a small business owner? Yeah, um, you know, the capital gains tax uh, has always been essentially associated with when you sell an asset that's appreciated in value, you invested a certain dollar amount in it and it's grown well beyond that dollar that you put into it, um, that growth is a capital gain and is subject to being taxed. The current law with capital gains was established under a recent statute called the uh, Tax Code and Jobs Act. And that was basically passed at the end of 2017. And it said we have a graduated uh, capital gains tax. From, so from zero, if you're in a low enough income bracket, to 15% capital gains tax uh, for most of us in terms of uh, being in, uh, at certain income levels. And then lastly, at 20% for those of us in the higher income tax brackets. And um, that's, you know, that's, that's been attractive to a lot of investors because they feel like, uh, you know, I'm not going to be taxed heavily if I make trades. If I, get, if I take advantage and harvest some of that gain, it's only going to cost me 15 to 20%. The proposals from the Biden uh, plan in terms of a tax proposal right now would change that. There wouldn't be a graduated bracket based on income. It would just be a flat 20%. You had a capital gains, regardless of how much money you make, 20%. The second piece, though, and this is really of concern to uh, baby boomers who are in two relatively extreme uh, sets of the age band. Uh, one is for that older baby boomer generation that is looking to sell their business. 
they're ready to retire. They've always followed that sort of that mindset of the business is my retirement, so I'm going to you know sell it off and I'll enjoy the fruits of my labors. And the other are younger entrepreneurs that are less interested in staying with a business forever and more interested in creating a business, creating some wealth, taking advantage of uh, the capital gains, selling that pr- uh, business off and starting something new. Uh, for both of those people, regardless of um, where they're at in terms of age, if your income for the year under a Biden proposal is in excess of a million dollars, you won't have the lower capital gains tax rate of 20% under his proposal. Instead, if your income is over a million dollars, your capital gains rate will go to 39.6%, which is his proposed top marginal rate for ordinary income. Now, for a lot of us, we'd say, well, you know, I don't really make a million dollars a year. I mean, I, you know, I wish I did, but I'm not there. But if I'm selling my business, let's say I sell my business for $2 million, I'm now in that income bracket of I've just made $2 million of income. Uh, So now I'm in that um, 39.6% rate. If I sold it where the rate was 20%, that $2 million company, my tax levy is going to be somewhere around $400,000. If I sell it because my income is now in excess of uh, $1 million under this uh, Biden proposal, my income tax levy will be at 39.6%. And so then I'm going to not be taxed at 400,000. I'm going to be taxed at uh, roughly 700 and what 790,000 or so. Um, that's a big difference. That's a difference between netting out, uh, say, a million six if I'm taxed at 400,000, uh, or being netting out somewhere around 12 million if I'm taxed as closer to 790,000 or so. Um, That'll change decision-making if that comes to play. Business owners will begin to think, do I want to sell now? Do I, what, what about um, if I stay for a while and increase value? Uh, maybe I'll wait out this tax law change. Uh, there'll be a variety of decisions that business owners will need to make if that level of capital gains comes into play and applies to business owners who sell their practice or their business and they receive more than a million dollars in proceeds. So that's a significant change. We'll keep an eye on it, but planning for that will be uh, particularly important, uh, you know, if the tax law change, particularly after January of this year. Well, let's talk about that planning because we've uncovered the challenges of being a small business owner. So now let's talk about some potential solutions. Walk us through some of the strategies that one of these small business owners might want to consider. Yeah, I think that um, a couple of things right now is that um, with any business owner, one of the one of my mantras personally is that um, everything is about exit with a business owner. When do I exit my business? How do I exit, et cetera? And everybody's heard the adage that um, exit should begin the day that I open the doors of the business. And sometimes that's a little hard to conceptualize, right? Uh, what do you mean? I just opened the doors. I'm really trying to just stay afloat here. Uh, but here's what we really mean by that. What we mean is that every decision a business owner makes 
along the way should be about netting and improving value in the business. And so, for example, if I decide to sponsor a 401k retirement plan for my employees, typically the reason I'm doing that is because I want to attract and keep good employees. I'm going to make it a more favorable environment so that they don't look elsewhere and say, well, that employer has a 401k, I need to jump. Um, Instead, they'll say, no, my employer has a 401k, I'm happy here, I want to continue to uh, improve the the, um, profitability of this company, uh, and the employer sees increase in value as a result. In particular with key employees, and I think, Matt, this is where um, maybe this coronavirus has helped define things. Uh, you know, as we kind of are, you know, looking at our bottom lines as business owners and we look around and say, who do I have to have to weather this storm in the way of an employee? Who has to be with me by my side? What man or woman that I've got as an employee I have to have in order to continue this company to be profitable during these turbulent times? Those are my key people. Sometimes in really good times, we think everybody's key. Uh, but really, this helps define who we really need to retain, and retaining key people is a critical part of value as, as far as building the company. So yeah, as an example, if I get five years down the road and decide to sell the company, and the potential outside buyers look at the company and say, hey, this is good, this is profitable, this is a, a terrific business, who's making it go? If it's all the owner, and if he leaves there's no more engine, Um, that's an issue for outside buyers. They don't want to learn how to run the company. They want the company to be profitable from the day they buy it. And so if I have key management in place where I've retained them and rewarded them, that's going to be a critical component of building value. So I think everything's about exit. Uh, From a business owner standpoint, the other thing that I need to be thinking about is Out of all the companies that are brought to the marketplace in any given year, only about 25 to 30% of them actually sell. So if I'm looking at the business as my retirement, what I need to be thinking about is if this business doesn't sell because there are a lot of other similar businesses also on the market, all these baby boomers retiring at the same time, Uh, then I need to be thinking today, before I get to that point where I want to sell five, ten years out, I need to be thinking about also taking money out of the business uh, so that um, if I uh, am not able to sell to a third party, I've already built kind of this outside sinking fund, this resource, these investments that will help my retirement in addition to what I can receive from the sale of the assets of the business in terms of liquidation. I want to be on both extremes. I'm profitable, I'm an attractive candidate for third-party purchases, uh, or it doesn't work out, and I've positioned myself, uh, regardless of what I can get out of the business, I've also got this uh, cash and investments outside. Uh, I want to position both ways. I want to be strategic, I want to be flexible, and I want to make sure that um, I address all the possibilities. And then the, the last piece, as far as what business owners should be doing right now, is to me, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, start putting cash back, start retaining key people, and start that process of um, 
looking out and saying, is everything that I'm doing helping build value for the future? So if I keep the business fine, if I sell the business fine, but value is increasing over time. Well, I'd like to wrap up our conversation by talking a little bit about interest rates. Normally, that would be something that that I would talk more about uh, with with the client rather than involving wealth strategies. But you've actually put that in a little bit different perspective for me because you've pointed out that low interest rates can actually be a good thing when you're talking about business and estate planning techniques. Would you mind sharing with us exactly what you meant by that? Yeah, Matt, um, in, especially in the estate planning area, um, there are different tools and techniques, and it's just like any uh, toolbox that you've got. Some tools are better for different jobs, and one of the tools that we have are tools that are benefited by high interest rates, and we also have tools that are benefited by low interest rates. And so, for example, the cleanest example of that would be if I wanted to make a loan either to an employee or to my member of my family, the um, tax rules say that that loan has to be uh, charging an interest rate that's at least a minimum acceptable by the IRS. The way that we know what's a, that minimum interest rate acceptable to the IRS is we get that from a table that the IRS publishes on a monthly basis. And that's referred to as the applicable federal rate, or more commonly, the AFR. AFRs right now, and they're broken into three uh, components. One is short-term, and that's anywhere from uh, zero to three years. That that, uh, short-term rate right now is 0.14%. So if I loaned money to an employee, loaned money to a family member, and said you got to pay me back in three years, I can charge you as little as 0.14% on that loan, and the AFR rate says that's okay. The midterm rate, which is rates from uh, on loans from three to nine years, that's 0.39% in October of 2020. Um, and then finally, the long-term rate is you know anything over nine years. That's at 1.14%. That's all I have to charge in, in the way of an acceptable interest rate on these loans. Now, where, where I might do that in a family situation for uh, uh, estate planning purposes, instead of using uh, my capital and giving it away, what I might do is loan it to a family member. I might loan them a million dollars, for example, and say, uh, I'm going to loan this to you for nine years. I'll charge you 1.14%. Uh, you go do what you can do with that million dollars. Go buy stock, go build a business, whatever it is, that's yours. You have to pay me back. That's one of the rules with the IRS. Or after a period of time, I might just say, I forgive that loan. And I can do that too using some of my um, lifetime exemption. The lifetime exemption right now under that Tax Codes and Jobs Act is 11580000 per person. So for a spouse, uh, or two, you know, for a couple, that's $23 million plus. Um, that, that number is likely to come back either by law, it's scheduled to come back in 2026, uh, so that it comes back to uh, roughly about $6 million apiece, 
And it's expected that with the Biden tax proposals, it would bring it back to about $6 million as well. So I can loan money at a very favorable rate. If I wanted to sell assets to uh, family members, uh, and I wanted to do that with an installment sale, the interest rate on that installment sale would, again, be determined by the least amount that I can charge is that AFR rate. Um, and then, as I mentioned, with executive benefits for business owners, I can loan them money for any number of reasons. One of the most popular right now, especially for uh, profits, uh, profitable companies and nonprofit companies, is that um, uh, I would use a, what they refer to as a, a loan regime split dollar. And all that boils down to is I'll loan money to an a executive. They'll buy a life insurance contract as cash value. That cash value will be growing and it's uh, owned by them. The only thing that they have to do is pay me back at some point. And the interest rate is this, these dollar amounts or these percentage amounts that I've mentioned. And I can forgive those and, as an income item each year. So uh, 1% on $10,000. I forgive that interest rate on an annual basis. He picks that up as an income item, but that insurance contract is growing cash value over time. Uh, once the loan's resolved, then he has that cash value to retire on, et cetera, et cetera. And the interesting thing is I never picked up anything as income uh, by, as an executive other than the, the forgiven interest rate. At some point, he pays me back, probably borrowing against the insurance contract or from other sources. And then uh, post-retirement, when he has that cash available to him, he can draw it down through loans and withdrawals of his own against the policy on a tax-free basis. So there's a lot out there in terms of uh, interest-free activity uh, or low-interest activity that um, I think is going to be very valuable both on the estate and the business side, uh, particularly because we expect these low rates to last for some time. Well, Pat, this has been a real treat. I get to hear you all the time, and I'm always blown away at how proficient you are in so many different areas, but it's really your ability to break things down and plan ahead and make it understandable and cohesive that, that I find the most impressive. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Matt. As I say, it's been a real pleasure. For more content from Pat, you can read his commentary on the Insights section of our website. You can also follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter, at Matt Rush SFP. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified as new episodes are released. And if you are interested in our firm or would like to contact me, check us out online at strategicfinancialpartners.com.